the honor afforded unto us this morning to assemble in this way, to honor and to adore and to praise the name of God is truly a great blessing. And certainly as we read in the New Testament of God's command to gather and assemble on the first day of the week, this Sunday, this last Sunday in May this year, it nonetheless is a precious privilege and a grand opportunity that we each have this morning. Not only to start the week off on a good foot, of course, but also to do that which is commanded of us, and in so doing, to praise and adore the name of our Heavenly Father. As was mentioned, the announcements were certainly appreciative of the presence of each and every one, and we trust that as we worship today in our singing, in our praying, in our participating in the Lord's Supper, for instance, and also in our study of the Word of God, we will be encouraged and uplifted in those ways that would allow us to walk more pleasingly in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. As you might have noted in the bulletin, we will be studying this morning or giving our thoughts to a lesson entitled, Dress for Godly Success. Isn't it interesting to give some reflection to the various types of raiment or attire that one reads of within the pages of the Word of God? I've listed only a very small sampling, but one reads of loincloths and girdles and mantles. One even reads about those occasions in which cloaks or tunics are in fact presented to us. And as we study and learn about the various attire that they wore in those ages long past, it challenges us to appreciate and to give some thought to the various specifics of one's attire. We remember that John the Baptist wore, of course, that raiment of camel's hair and a leather girdle. We read of the priest, especially the high priest, who was commanded in very specific detail to wear clearly prescribed kinds of clothing. We even recall that women... In 1 Corinthians 11, we mention is they're made of veils that they wore in that era. It all begs the question, doesn't it? Is God concerned with the kind of clothing that one wears? Or does he allow you and I to make those choices and decide that for ourselves? One of the slogans that is so often presented to those individuals who are going for an interview, dress for success. What one wears makes a great impression upon the potential employer, and it also makes a great impression upon the way in which one presents oneself, what one considers vital and important, and the type of employee that one might be. Might I suggest this morning we consider dressing for godly success. In the eyes of our Heavenly Father, what would be proper attire? Let's see if we can answer some of those questions that you and I have raised already this morning. As we do so, our intent, of course, is to only set forth and indelibly imprint in our mind only what is set forth in the Word of God. The text we shall consider today is found in the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians. A portion of that was read this morning. I would invite you to turn there with me and we will read a somewhat larger section to place it in its context and to use it to help ourselves as we think about dressing for godly success. In so doing... Might we give some thought immediately to the opening three verses of that chapter? Let's read for the time being the first eight verses, but then we will revisit and focus especially on the first three to begin our lesson. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. 
that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. In the opening stages of that chapter, we note immediately in verse number 1, that Paul, that peerless apostle, rather directly and also somewhat powerfully asserted that to you, Thessalonian brethren, has been delivered and revealed those matters of import and revelation from God. Specifically, he says, as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God. When Paul labored in that area, as well as he and his companions, he gave instruction whereby they would know how they ought to walk and how that they were to please God. That word walk is such an interesting term, isn't it? I have given you a definition whereby that can be appreciated. The word walk, as it is so often used in the New Testament, has relationship to one's conduct, one's behavior, one's lifestyle. In essence, Paul says, you have received Thessalonians the instruction whereby your conduct would in fact be pleasing unto God. And he closes the verse by saying that you should abound in this more and more. In essence, not only to merely understand and to know it, but in fact to increase and to mature in that with each passing day. The Thessalonians, you see, were well aware of what was involved in their daily conduct. Not just, let's say, at the times they would assemble for a Bible study or perhaps for a worship service. This was their daily conduct, and in that they had received instruction, and thus they were to appreciate and to abound in this. But you might note verse 2 with me briefly. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. These instructions that they had received were not just suggestions. They were not merely, if you please, optional arrangements. Paul here recognized that they were commandments. And in the Greek, the thought behind it is the word charge, which in fact in the Greek means also commandments. These were God's commands. It is still a remarkable thing, isn't it, to appreciate that God's Word touches your life and mine every day. How I should think, speak, behave myself, including even the way I should dress, or not dress as the case may be. It is to be noted then that these matters to the Thessalonians in fact hit them rather strongly, did it not? These commandments of which Paul spoke. You know, verse 2, what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Paul did not claim these were his personal opinion. He didn't thus try to bind upon the Thessalonian individuals what he thought or what he preferred. These are matters whereby, through the nature of the revelation of Jesus the Christ, these things have been revealed to you. As he made these statements to them, you and I might now wonder, what were these commandments? To what did Paul have a special reference? Thankfully, in verses 3 and following, some specific information is given to each of us. Verse 3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. 
And immediately the matter that rested first and foremost on the mind of the peerless apostle was that of the sanctification of the Thessalonian brethren. Sanctification. That word has within it the notion of being set apart, being purified, being in fact particularly arranged for an especial service. The Thessalonians, you see, Paul desired to be sanctified to the service of, of their heavenly Father, to the service of God. And in that sanctification, how often are we reminded that you and I are in a similar situation ourselves today? Think about the Corinthians briefly. In 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9, Paul listed a number of sins of which the Corinthians had in the past been guilty. Sins including murder, imbibing in alcoholic beverages, homosexuality, as well as some others. But he very quickly says, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified. And thus, in one fail notice, we have recognition of the fact that from sin they had now been justified from these things, and in that state they had been washed clean from them and sanctified. They had now been set apart to the very direct service of the God of heaven, sanctified. Consider yet another example, not only the Corinthian brethren. Look also in John seventeen seventeen and notice there what our Savior uttered on that interesting night prior to his crucifixion. When he said, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. And Jesus thus prayed that those particular ones of whom he had reference, those apostles in particular on that occasion, that they would be sanctified through the character and agency of that wonderful and amazing word of God. Today as you and I are sanctified, 1 Corinthians 1 verses 1 and 2, by obedience to this gospel, Hebrews 10 verse 14, we too have been sanctified to the service of the God of heaven. Each one of us that have been baptized for the remission of our sins have been set apart to the very service and our livelihood, our lifestyle, our conduct should thus be reflective of our devotion to God. As mentioned earlier, that includes not only the way that we speak, not only, for instance, the places that we visit, it also includes the manner in which you and I choose to dress, the clothing that we choose to wear. You notice one thing further that Paul noted about that statement. In verse number 3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Perhaps you and I should not be quick to lose sight of the fact that it is God's will that each of us be sanctified to Him. He doesn't wish any to be lost. He doesn't wish any to die and go to hell. He doesn't wish any to live apart from Him because the best life on this earth is even that life devoted and dedicated to God. Thus, we're ready to ask, Paul, what do you mean by that sanctification in particular? First thing in verse 3, that you should abstain from fornication. The first element in the list takes us to the character of sexual behavior. In the interest of being sanctified, Paul's first recognition, the first element in the list, was that you abstain from fornication. That word abstain derives its meaning from a Greek word which means to hold oneself from, or to put it differently, to have nothing to do with, 
to completely restrain oneself from participating in this particular activity listed. And the activity in this place? Fornication. The Thessalonians, as well as many other cultures in the ancient world, had a problem, of course, with fornication. Whether it was related to pagan worship in some of the temples, whether it was regard to the rather licentious lifestyle well known in Corinth, the problem, of course, in many ways was the same. And might I suggest there still is much to be said about abstaining from fornication. But Paul here, directly up front, said, In the interest of being sanctified, you must abstain from fornication. As one gives some thought to that word fornication, what does it mean? Perhaps in days gone by, in decades past, there would not have been as much need to define that. It was a more well-understood term in our society, no doubt with the leniency of the media, and the leniency of the culture no longer does everyone understand what is meant by fornication, but perhaps we should simply say, it has behind it in the Greek that pornea word, any, and I underscore any, illicit sexual activity. Inclusive, of course, of the actual act of intercourse, if you please, with anyone other than one scriptural mate, and also anything that would arouse one in those ways. And thus, this term in its broadness is a very strong one indeed, that you abstain from fornication. That meaning, of course, helps us today to realize how sorely and how desperately our world still needs this information, that the character of sexuality, inasmuch as it was in fact the plan of God, he, in knowing what is best, reserved it by command for one and only one means of participation. Hebrews 13.4 still reads, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. And it's sufficient and interesting to note that word whoremongers in that passage in Hebrews 13.4 relates directly to fornication. Thus, all those who are guilty of fornication, God will judge. It is so important then that we strive to not only keep ourselves pure in all regards to this, we have to instill it in our children and those whom we have the opportunity to influence. Abstain from fornication, this by far is not the only place that information is found. In Acts 15.20, when after that particular conference in Jerusalem on the matter of circumcision, that was one of the four things that Paul, in fact, was instructed to carry to the Gentile world. You abstain from fornication. Later we learn in 1 Corinthians 6.18, two little words start that verse. Flee fornication. Simply put, isn't it? Flee fornication. And that was to that city that perhaps among all others was known for its fornicating lifestyle in the ancient world. And yet to them, Paul wrote, flee fornication. At this point, it might be interesting to notice that thought that follows. What was so imperative about fleeing fornication? And what other thought did Paul have behind it? You might note verses 19 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, whose temple ye are? And then verse 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. For you and I should appreciate, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 
that body that you and I have been blessed to have. We think of it as our own, and yet, notice, that body and the spirit that is you and me are ultimately that which comes from God. We thus should strive to glorify Him in our body and in our spirit. All the activities performed in and by the body and all the things that involve our actual spirit are thus to be directed toward a glorification of the God of heaven. Flee fornication. That aspect of fleeing fornication thus asks us to know if that was but the first element in this inspired listing of 1 Thessalonians 4. What comes next? Verse number 4 continues by saying, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and in honor. To possess his vessel. We, each of us may be tempted to scratch our head and ask, what is Paul saying here? To possess his vessel? To possess seems to suggest most of the time to own something, to be the one that is described as the owner thereof. And what is this vessel to which Paul refers? Might I ask you to consider these thoughts near the bottom of that slide. To possess one's vessel means to control one's body. To control one's physical body. For one thing, to in fact abstain from fornication. To control it in such a way that if one burns with passion, one must control that and not lapse into the participation in fornication. For that kind of sexual wrong will lead one to an eternity in hell. Among those sins listed in Galatians 5 that will forever bar one, of course, except from proper repentance, fornication is near the top of that list. Thus, to possess one's vessel asks us to note to control oneself, to control one's body. To what end? In sanctification and in honor. We've already noticed that word sanctified earlier today in the lesson. To be set apart, purified. It is still the case that we should lift high the notion of purity. Sexual purity to ourselves and our children. Save yourselves, young people, for your mate. When you and your mate can then enjoy all that God would have you to be able to enjoy in the flesh... Save yourself until that time, for otherwise it's sin against God. You sin against your body, the one you're doing this with, and also before the eyes of God of heaven. Flee fornication, Paul writes. In that matter thus of honor, we might ask, to possess one's vessel in honor, how do we control our bodies and the way in which that body is presented in such a way that it lifts high the banner of honor? May we be exceedingly quick to say, to in fact present the body in honor. The human body is not a spectacle to be flaunted publicly. It was never created for that fashion. We appreciate in the days before sin, of course, Adam and Eve could go about naked for there was no sin. But isn't it interesting that at the time they sinned, one of the first things they did was to attempt to cover their bodies. In the understanding and recognition in Genesis 3 verse 7, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. It is significant, is it, that after God's rebuke of Adam, of Eve, and of the serpent, he proceeded to remedy their shortcoming 14 verses later. 
In verse 21 of Genesis 3, they, of course, are in the position that God thus clothed them with skins he had made. Their coverings had been insufficient. But should it not be noted that today the human body thus in our state is not to be flaunted publicly. Remember that we are to glorify God in our body and in our spirit, which are God's. And thus it causes one not only to question, but to appreciate the error in trying to make the human body a spectacle for public attention. It is not for that purpose. That means, of course, our attire is directly before us in this passage, isn't it? To flee fornication was mentioned first, to abstain from it. And now he says in this next verse, to possess his vessel. So I should not dress in such a way, encouraging of even remotely the notion of fornication, to cause another's eyes and thoughts to pursue that which is impure, to in fact, not only myself, but maybe to lead others to think on things that are not just and holy and honest and pure and lovely and just and of a good report, Philippians 4.8. Those matters on which the human mind should be directed, again, are matters related to God and His righteousness and His sanctification. To dress in such a way, to encourage another, to think on things impure, not only leads them into wrong, I am in the wrong as well. Romans 1 verse 32. It would seem so far that the language that Paul wrote is certainly stern and rather directly straightforward. But he isn't finished yet. You might notice verse 5 with me. He's mentioned two things so far. Abstaining from fornication and possessing one's vessel. And now in verse number 5, we arrive at yet this next thing. In it we see the following. An interesting turn of phrase. Not in the lust of concupiscence. And for certain, that word concupiscence is not a familiar term to us in the modern way of language. In the year 2010, here in English, we just don't use the word concupiscence very much. In fact, some of us may not be at least thoroughly conversant as to what the definition of that word would be. I've attempted to borrow from the Greek, using a lexicon, of course, and to help us understand more thoroughly what the meaning of that word might actually be. And if you're reading in the King James, or I'm sorry, the American Standard Translation, you probably will find it written as something passion of lust. If we thus render it that way, Paul writes, not in the passion of lust, even as the Gentiles which know not God. Now that's not a sentence in and of itself. It ties on to what we just studied. Possess his vessel, not in the lust of concupiscence. Possess his vessel, not in the passion of lust. That is an interesting point, isn't it? As I seek to possess this vessel of mine, and as you seek to possess the body that you have been given, Paul says, do not possess it in the passion of lust, in such a way that you, out of a passionate lust for it, strive in essence to promote and to flaunt it, to present it as wildly available to be seen of others as a spectacle for the human family. That word not still means not. That is not the reason that that body has been given to you and that the one has been given to me. That body, notice, abstain from fornication, possess it in honor and sanctification, 
To what end, Paul? Not in the lust of concupiscence, not in the passion of lust. As we give some thought to the details and specifics in which that's presented, this seems an appropriate place to make notice of verse 7, which fits in the same context. God has not called us unto uncleanness. It is a self-evident fact from what we've learned in verses 1 and 2. God has called us to sanctification. He wants all to be right with Him and to live in a righteous fashion. He doesn't wish and has not called us to live in uncleanness, but rather holiness, verse 7. There's a world of difference between holiness and uncleanness. There is, in fact, a continental divide of distinction between the two. Uncleanness, in Ephesians 5.3, is housed in words like this, Let it not be once named among the saints. That is to say, your life and mine should be so conducted, and our behavior should be, such that that which is unclean ought not even be named in the same sentence with you and me. Our life should be recognized as holy, set apart and abstained from fornication, the passion of lust, and the possession of our vessels in such a way that we glorify God and uncleanness has no part in us. As one gives some thought to uncleanness, note the definition of that word. This matter of passion of lust reminds us of the New Testament usage of that word lust, L-U-S-T. And it is used in such a negative connotation, and it's used in such a light to warn us to ever be sure to abstain from it. In 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts, Paul wrote to Timothy. In addition to that, in Titus 2 verses 11 and 12, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. In 1 Peter 2.11, abstain from freshly lust which war against the soul. Are we beginning to see how dangerous lust is? When we ourselves are guilty of it, or we live in such a way to encourage others to be guilty of it. And of course, that would include the way we dress. To dress in such a way that parts of the body are sufficiently visible or at least unconcealed, that leads the thoughts of others to be directed toward that which is lustful and impure. Friend, when you and I so conduct ourselves, we are guilty of sin, they are guilty of sin. And that's a serious situation to be in. And thus the way that we dress is exceedingly vital, isn't it? I've given us a definition of uncleanness. It has to do with that which is literally contaminated, or being tarnished or marked. The Greek word is akatharsia, and the literal meaning has to do with that which is waste or of worthless material. Literally, it can be used in the scriptures as referring to those corpses in a grave. But notice the figurative uses it appears from time to time. It has to do with moral uncleanness, impurity. It stands opposite to holy living. And finally, it has to do with sexual vice, meaning immorality, indecency, or sexual impurity. Romans 1, verses 24 and following. Indecency. This matter of uncleanness is then a direct one that hits me as much as it does any other person. To ever make certain that we dress in such a fashion as to never 
cause someone else to be guilty of lust. But even that perhaps isn't the final story in this, in this episode. For what comes next? Having looked so far at those three things to which Paul has referred, the fornication, the possessing of the vessel, and finally, this matter, as we've seen in verse 5, the passion of lust, you'll notice that another New Testament word that falls directly into this same discussion is that of lasciviousness. Another lengthy word appearing in Galatians 5, but it relates so strongly in definition to here that it seemed pertinent to mention it. It has to do with the following definitions. Unbridled lust, excess, licentiousness, lasciviousness, wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness, and insolence. And so perhaps making use of any of these, how do you and I dress in such a way that we are not guilty of encouraging lasciviousness and we are not guilty of encouraging lust? Perhaps that's the take-home lesson for our time this morning. Practically, how do I dress and how would you dress in such a way to fall within the friendly confines of God's will on this subject? These are some thoughts that I would pass by us ever so quickly. First, in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 27, Paul, or rather the Lord himself, stated that to that man who looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Ladies, are you guilty ever of dressing in such a way that a man can gaze at you and think about things that he shouldn't? Men, what about you? Are you ever guilty of dressing in such a way that another woman can look at you and think about things of a sexual character between her body and yours that are impure and that she shouldn't think of? It's a sobering thought, isn't it? Consider yet another. We know that we're surrounded by any number of avenues that challenge us on a rather daily basis. You walk through the checkout line at some store, and beside you are these photographs of half-naked, perhaps almost totally naked, men and women. Perhaps we should strive with great urgency to remember, not in the passion of lust. We shouldn't be gazing at those photographs at long last, pondering what's going on with that person's body. We should be turning our eyes very quickly ever desirous of thinking only on what's true and honest and just and lovely and pure and of a good report, Philippians 4.8. I understand that Satan makes it hard, but we must nonetheless be vigilant and we must in fact be determined. That means we certainly shouldn't be subscribing to the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Ladies, whatever the comparable magazine for you would be, you shouldn't be subscribing to it and you shouldn't be perusing it either. None of us should be looking through these catalogs where perhaps mostly naked men and women are portrayed for us, even if we're focusing mostly on the clothing. It is something to ensure that our mind is only focused on that which it should be. But notice what else. As we think of being about the clothing that we actually are wearing, this leaves none of us out, either men or women. Women, do you wear blouses or dresses that are simply cut too low? Where your chest area is either partially or almost wholly visible, it should not be. That's reserved for your husband and no man else. 
as far as the section that's below those blouses? Is our midsection open? The opening of the midsection does nothing but attract the eyes to that part of the body. And in so doing, we understand what is below it. And we understand the temptation that's there for another to think upon that which is improper and impure. We shouldn't be wearing such things. It simply ought not so to be. Men, you shouldn't be going about shirtless. For again, your body is not to be open for public spectacle either. We should appreciate that we ought not be encouraging others to lust. Lust will condemn our soul and theirs. For indeed, if we are guilty of promoting such, we are just as guilty as they are for thinking it. Again, Romans 1.32. Our dress should be of a far more modest, chaste, and godly sort. Every day of the week, not just every now and then, and not just, of course, on the occasion of Wednesdays or Sundays. As far as other aspects of our dress, how low cut should things be? Certainly the Bible doesn't demand that we wear things that go all the way to touch the floor. We understand even in the ancient days various dresses and elements didn't go quite that far. However, there's certainly a problem, it seems, these days with things being too short. And it's true for both men and women. Whereas the women can choose to wear mini skirts or such things of the like that really are almost up to the top of the leg, it does nothing again but lead others to wonder and to think about that portion of the body that is so uncovered and that is so revealing. And thus, as we come to elements like that, might I ask you to notice that as we men can also be guilty of wearing things which ought not to be. Shorts ought not be too short. If they're too far above the knee, we should be choosing something else. Again, too high leads one to think about that portion of the human body that is tantalizingly revealed. The human body, again, is not to be tantalizing except for the person that is our spouse. In those matters, as you look at things that we think about then are shorts, we shouldn't be wearing them if they're too short. Now, how short is too short? God doesn't come out and give us a distance in inches. It would seem if it's more than two to three inches above the knee, we should be thinking twice. And if it's much above that, it would seem the answer must be no. As we think about those, how are we dressing? Would the Lord endorse this? Would Jesus approve this? Whether it be the tops that we wear, the bottoms that we choose to wear, may we make sure that the parts of the body are sufficiently covered. Ever since that time when sin entered the world in Genesis 3, it has been God's intent and His desire, His will and the interest of sanctification for the human body not to be displayed as a spectacle for others, but to be appropriately and properly concealed. Be it tops, shorts, other aspects, they need to be proper in their design. As you give some thought to those matters, that would seem to suggest that swimming trunks, very few, if any, can be found appropriate there. For their whole design, you see, is to uncover as much, it would seem, of the body as they can. Thus, if you and I choose to swim, make sure that we wear something that properly conceals all the pertinent parts of the human body, period. For if not, we could be leading somebody else, and maybe many, to
to sin. And we're guilty of the same. The way we dress is very important. And it's very important not only to us, but of course to God. As you come near the bottom of that slide, when God clothed Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve properly in Genesis 3, we should not forget there are a couple of verses in the New Testament that sound a loud warning to each of us. In 1 Timothy 2.9, though the setting there particularly had to do with that which related to an assembly for worship, he nonetheless used the word shamefacedness and modesty. And as we notice in 1 Peter 3, there it is a description of that which is far more general. Each and every day, how should you and I dress? Paul, of course, address, or Peter directly speaks to those that are women. You and I as men need to listen closely to the lesson, though, however, as well. For he specifically notes that let the adorning not be of the plating of the hair, of the wearing of gold, or, as the verse closes, of the putting on of apparel, but let it be of a quiet and meek spirit on the inward part. Now, he didn't mean that, ladies, you can't wear jewelry. And he didn't mean, ladies, that you can't plait your hair. For if he means that, he means you can't wear clothes either. And so we understand the point. He means the way that you dress should not be to attract the attention of everybody else. Again, in a sexual character, your husband... And men, your wife is the one you should be striving to excite, the one you should be striving to, in fact, impress with your clothing and other things. As you give thoughts to that, how do you and I dress day by day? In concluding the lesson today, let's briefly and quickly review those three things. Flee fornication. Possess your vessel. That is, control yourself, but not in the lust of concupiscence. We each should thus wear that which is becoming of a person striving to please God, not seeking to lead others to lust or promoting it as that which we desire, but rather uncleanness, not lasciviousness, but holiness. May we each be charged and challenged to thus look carefully at what we wear at school, in the workplace, in recreation, Anything that we do, because notice, God addresses it in 1 Thessalonians 4, and he speaks volumes about the error that can come thereby. This morning, as we give thought to examining ourselves, whether we be in the faith, where do you stand before your Heavenly Father? Has your clothing been of a particular pattern and variety and fashion that would be unbecoming of what you should have been wearing? If that's been the case, make repentance. Beg God for forgiveness as you follow His plan proceeding to repentance and strive to live better each day. Change your wardrobe if that's the need. Buy different clothing. Each of us, let us be reminded of just how important this matter is. If you're not a Christian today, realize that you need to become one in order to have eternal life as that which is promised to you. If we could be of assistance in any way with regard to that end today, Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. If we can assist you in that, the baptismal waters are ready. We'd be happy and honored to be a part of it. If you have been a Christian, maybe you've allowed from the influence of others your attire to be less than what it should be. Come back to your first love today. Let others know of your intent not to wear what once was worn but rather to wear that which is right and godly. And if we could help in 
asking or praying to God on your behalf, we'd be honored to do that as well. If we can be of assistance in either of these ways today, won't you let it be known while together we stand and while we sing.